Good to be with you all. Um, if you want to open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6, um, we'll be looking at the covenant with Noah this morning. But before we get into that, just a brief review. So we're, going, we're taking a short break from the Gospel of John, and we are looking at this series called Christ in All the Scriptures. We're, we're trying to see and understand what we sort of hinted at in John chapter 8, which was that Abraham looked forward to see the day of Christ, that Christ was the object of Abraham's faith. And we said that, and in one sense it's easy to say that, but it's, it takes a whole lifetime to show that in the Old Testament and all the Scriptures. And so we're taking this break um, from the Gospel of John to look at Christ in all the Scriptures, starting with the covenant of works in the garden and going all the way forward to the new covenant in Christ. And so last week we talked about covenant theology. What is it? Why is it important to understand? How does it help us put together all the scriptures as this one redemptive plan of God's purpose for salvation? And we talked about how covenant is this way that God relates to his people, relates to his creatures. And we looked at the first covenant in the scriptures, which is the covenant of works in the garden that man was created in this perfect state. He was created good, holy, righteous, in knowledge and true holiness. He had the law written on his heart, and he was given power and the ability to keep God's law. And God enters into this covenant with Adam. We call it the covenant of works, where Adam was to work and then enter God's rest. He was to do what God commanded him to do. And part of that is what we call the cultural mandate. He was to be fruitful and multiply. He was to fill the earth with image-bearing sons of God. He was to subdue God's creation. And at the completion of that, he would enter God's rest. And so we saw this as a covenant of works because there's both a blessing if, if God, if, sorry, not Abraham, <laughs> if Adam does what God commanded him to do, and we see this symbolized in the tree of life, but then there's also a curse if Adam does not. If he breaks this covenant, we saw this symbolized in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so at the, it doesn't take long for Adam to fall from his state of righteousness. Adam eats of the fruit, the fruit. <laughs> I'm all over the place this morning. <laughs> it's those tiny notes, that's what I need my magnifying glass. That he ate of the fruit, he brought curse and death onto all people, and so we saw that this covenant of works is broken with Adam in the garden. But it does not take long for God to come into the picture again and bring his grace. That we saw in Genesis 3.15, God promises that there would be one that would come from the woman, the seed of the woman that would destroy the works of the devil, this serpent-crushing seed. We saw that promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, and we talked about how that points forward to Christ as the second and last Adam that will do everything Adam failed to do. And this was the hope of Old Testament believers. They were looking forward to this seed of the woman, the one that would come and destroy the works of the devil. And the rest of the scriptures is this unfolding, progressive plan of God's revelation. God didn't just give the Bible all at once. <laughs> it was revealed progressively over the ages. And so what we'll look at today is we'll see that this fall into sin and curse causes things to go from bad to worse. Sin is not just like this small kind of thing that just sort of affects Adam and Eve's relationship with God, but it affects every human 
interaction in every human relationship. That the world goes from this good creation that God created to full of sin and wickedness. That God's good creation is now marred by sin, turned against Him, turned towards wickedness. And this can cause us to ask some questions, some difficult questions, I think. Was this a surprise to God? Was this somehow not foreseen in his plan? Was this fall into sin somehow outside of his control? And maybe more pointedly, God had this great plan for Adam and Eve, this plan for them to take dominion, to fill the earth with image-bearing sons of God, and then to enter God's rest. Is that plan somehow derailed, sidetracked, no longer part of the plan? And so what we're going to see today in the covenant with Noah and the flood event is we'll see that God is not only a God of justice, He's not only going to bring justice, but He's also a God of mercy and grace. That God has a plan not only for His creation, not only to bring it to the fulfillment that He set out for in the beginning, but He also has a plan to redeem His people and save them from their sins, that he will bring about his purposes. He will preserve his creation, even though it is fallen, and that he will do this for the purpose of saving his people and the glory of his name. So if you want to open up your Bibles with me, we'll look at um, a couple passages from Genesis chapter 6 all the way to Genesis chapter 9. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at this covenant with Noah. This is the word of the Lord. We'll begin at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then we go on in the following chapters to read about this great ark that Noah is called to build. We see that he follows the commandment of God. He builds this ark for him, his wife, and his children, and their wives, and all the animals to go into this ark to have safety from this flood judgment that is coming. And we read about that in chapter 7 and chapter 8. We read about this great flood that comes upon the earth. That Adam, I mean Noah and his family enter the ark. The waters rise. The judgment prevails. The waters recede. And Noah and his family exit the ark on dry ground. And we'll pick up in chapter 8, verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your wives, sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Then jumping down to verse 20. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike again every creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered." Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And then jumping down to verse 6, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I have made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reading of your word that you've given us your special revelation your gospel, your word, that we might know you and your plan of salvation from all eternity. And that we see in this passage and in this covenant that nothing can thwart your plan. No sin, no curse, no evil or wickedness can destroy your plan of salvation to bring about the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we look at this covenant with Noah, this covenant of common grace, that we would see that you are preserving your creation even now and you will bring it to the end for which you have seen it, Lord. That which, that which your word goes out to do, it will accomplish. And that we pray that through all these things, Lord, we would see the gospel of Christ and our need for his work alone. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So, um, a big topic to look at as we looked at last week. I forget what Andrew called last week's. <laughs> I don't know. I forget what he called it. He had some word for it. But so, a lot of ground to cover. So, uh, let's get into it. So, the first three things that we're going to look at, you can follow along on your outline if you want to. First, we're going to look at the events after the fall. 
We're going to see that the fall brings with it curse and death, and we're going to look at how that affects God and not affects God, but God's creation. And then we're going to look at the Noahic covenant or the covenant of common grace. What is this covenant that God makes with Noah and all creation in Genesis chapter 9? What does it mean for us here today? And then finally, we'll look at how this points us to Christ and the covenant of grace. So as we get into this, we have to look at the events that happened after the fall. So we saw in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve go against God. They try to usurp his authority. They try to live by their own word. And in this, they fall from their state of righteousness and they bring sin and death on God and his creation. We see God promises in Genesis 3.15 to bring forth this seed of the woman. But there's another promise in there, which is that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, between the wicked and between the godly. And we see a microcosm of this in the very first event that happens after the fall, which is what? (laughs) Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. We see the first murder recorded in human history. Cain kills his brother Abel. And so we see right from the bat that this fall into sin, this curse, is not some small secondary thing. It is affecting every human relationship from the very beginning. And we see this climb and climb until we get to Genesis chapter 6, which we read this morning, where we see in Genesis chapter 6 that just as man has multiplied and started to fill the earth, so has sin. That we see in Genesis chapter 6 the sinfulness and the wickedness of men. What's it say? That every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. (laughs) That's pretty all-inclusive. Every thought, every intention was only evil continually. We see here evil's intensity. It's absoluteness, it's continuance, that it was not just something that affected Adam and Eve, but all those that came after them, Cain and Abel and everyone that followed from Adam's line. And so we see God promises to blot out man from the earth, but he finds one righteous man that finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, and that is Noah. Noah. And we read in Genesis chapter 5, it's very interesting. You could look there if you want, verse 28. We find out that Noah's name sounds like the Hebrew word for rest, which is very interesting. That Lamech, Noah's father, was naming Noah this because he anticipated that one would come after him that would bring rest or rest from the curse of Genesis chapter 3. So there's some interesting things there. We we don't have time to get into that this morning. But we see that God promises that he's going to judge the earth because of its wickedness. That judgment is coming on God's creation. But in the midst of this judgment and the promise of this judgment, we see that God provides a way of salvation, namely the ark. That Noah is called to build this ark just as God commanded him in the way that he commanded him. And that through this ark, God will preserve Noah and his family and the animals. Two of every living creature. And that he will destroy the earth with a flood. And that this ark is the only way, the only means by which man will be preserved through the judgment. And so we can read about this. The floods come. We see God's creation destroyed. 
Noah obeys the Lord. God brings this catastrophic judgment of the flood, and all that are not in the ark are destroyed. God's judgment is poured out on wicked and sinful creation. And so we can see pretty quickly that this is not a simple kid story, as it's often kind of presented, right? We're used to saying, oh, Noah, he built them. You know, we have all these songs, but it's not a very kid-friendly story in a lot of ways. It's, it's, it's very much about God's judgment and his just judgment of sinful humanity. And yet, in the midst of that, what we're meant to see is that God preserves or brings his people safely through the judgment in the ark, And there's not enough time to get into this today, but it's amazing the way Genesis chapter 8 presents this this event after the flood, that it very much reminds us of Genesis chapter 1, that if you think about it, the floodwaters that come up, they're very much like God's decreation. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1, there were floodwaters at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, the waters of the deep. God's almost bringing his creation back to the beginning. We see the wind or the spirit hovering over the waters. We see the dry land emerge. We see animals come out. We see birds fill the sky. We see man walk in his creation. It's almost like God is saying, Noah is this new Adam-like figure. It's almost like he's saying this new world after the flood is a type of new creation. Noah is given a mandate just like Adam to be fruitful and multiply. And I think we can think in our heads, is this God like just having a big do-over? God just said, you know, the first time it didn't really work out. You know, Adam messed up. And so Noah is just this big reset, this big do-over on God's part. And the way the language is in Genesis chapter 8, it can seem like this is almost a new Eden that God is setting up, like a plan B. The first time it just didn't go the way God planned it. And so now it's time to try with this different man named Noah. But the reason I think that God does this this way, and especially in Genesis chapter 8, shows this parallel, is we're meant to not just see the similarities, but the big looming contrast, which is sin still remains. Sin still remains. That the flood could destroy every creature, every living thing, but it could not destroy sin. It could not wipe out sin. Because we see within five minutes of Noah being off the ark, What's he do? He plants a vineyard, he gets drunk, and he exposes his nakedness, (laughs) which is very similar to what Adam did. What did Adam do? He ate from a fruit, he sinned, and his nakedness was exposed and uncovered. And so we see that the curse still remains. (laughs) The flood has come and it's judged all the wicked people. Noah's been preserved, but sin still remains. The curse is still present. The world is still fallen. Sam Renahan says this, The flood event saved the lives of Noah and his family, but not their souls. It did not change the heart of man. And the new creation that Noah and his family entered remains cursed by sin. The face of the earth may be less full of wickedness, but the heart of man remains just as full as ever. The realm that Noah and his family are entering is not Eden. It is not paradise. It is not a sacred place of God's presence. It is simply the fallen world. And so the big question that we have to ask ourselves is, how do we know God is not going to bring a flood judgment every time sin happens? Why didn't God just bring another flood when Noah sinned? 
And how can we know that every time it rains on the earth that God's not just going to flood the earth again? That He's not just going to bring catastrophic judgment? How do we know that God is going to preserve His creation? That brings us to point number two, the Noahic covenant, or the covenant of common grace. That this fall into sin in Genesis 3.15 not 3.15, but Genesis 3, seemed to derail God's plan. It appeared as if God's plan was not going accordingly. That if man is sinful and God is just, how can creation continue? How can sinful man continue in God's creation and still remain not judged? How is God going to accomplish His final goal and purpose for creation? How is He going to bring all things to the consummation end that He had set in purpose? How is God going to do that? Because if God is just, He has to punish sin. He can't not punish sin. But the answer to these questions comes in the form of this Noahic covenant. This covenant that God made with Noah. That we see in Genesis chapter 9, God makes a covenant That's not just with Noah, not just with Noah and his family, but with all of creation in view. We read about this in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. That in this covenant, God promises to preserve his creation. And we see that this covenant is unlike the covenant of works, because this covenant is unconditional. It does not have conditions on it. We could say it's unilateral. It's one-sided. It's God saying, I will. I will. Not I will if, but I will. It is a promise. And it's a promise that God would preserve His creation. That even though man in his sin deserves judgment immediately, that God would delay His judgment until the final time. And not only that, but God would extend His common, non-redemptive grace to all, both believer and unbeliever. And as we read in Matthew, that the rain will fall on the just and the unjust. So we can think of this covenant of common grace, I like to think of it this way, in a negative and a positive way. And I don't mean negative in terms of bad, but just the idea of withholding. We see in the negative sense that God's mercy is that he's withholding judgment, that final judgment is not being poured out on sin, that God is merciful, and in his common grace, he is withholding his judgment. And in the positive sense, we see that God is giving of his common grace, that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Both believer and unbeliever receive God's common grace. What do we mean by common grace? It is the opposite, or not the opposite, but it's opposed to redemptive grace, where redemptive grace, God's special grace, is what God does in saving people from their sins. God's common grace is different. Common meaning that it is given to all without distinction, the just and the unjust. And it's gracious in the fact that it's undeserved. It's demerited favor that the unjust and the just... don't deserve God's reign, but he gives it anyway. And this is God's common grace. And we can say this with confidence, that it would have been just for God to end human history as we know it right after the fall, right? All it would have taken was God saying, I'm done. You guys sinned. You broke my covenant of works. I'm going to pour out my final 
judgment. But God, in His grace, does not. This was all part of God's plan and purpose. And it's really interesting if you think about what was going on in Genesis chapter 3, we not only see the common curse that is put on both men and women on all of creation, right? There will be pain and childbearing. The ground will bring up thorns and thistles. That even though this common curse extends to all mankind because of the broken covenant of works, we can see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 the principles of this common grace, this common grace idea that all of the human race will be preserved. Even though it'll be cursed, even though it'll be difficult, man will still work. Man will still bring up fruit from the ground. It's going to be hard, but it'll still happen. Humankind will still multiply. It'll be painful. It'll be difficult, but it will still go on. God did not end human history. And so we can say that this common grace is God's promise to preserve the human race the cultural activities of the world, the natural social order, these are all temporarily preserved by God's common grace. I think this is a helpful way to think about it if none of that is really landing. It's helpful to think about like this. Common grace is the stage, the arena, the backdrop on which all of human history plays itself out. It's the backdrop, it's the stage on which this idea of God's redemption can play itself out. And how do we know this? How do we know that this is going on? Because you might say, Kindle, the words common grace aren't there. Where are you getting this stuff? We see this in the words that God says in Genesis chapter 9. Three things to point out. The first is we see the cultural mandate reissued after the fall. The cultural mandate is this idea of being fruitful and multiplying that Adam had this task of filling the earth with image-bearing sons of God, and we see, in a sense, this this commission is is reissued. He tells Noah in Genesis 9, 1 and 2 to be fruitful and multiply. And one theologian said this, all mankind is called to raise up and establish structured and successful societies, pursuing cultural achievement and growth, I like this. Man is not called to sit in the dirt and mope. (laughs) That's a good word for today. Man is not called to sit in the dirt and mope. We are called to work. Though the ground may sprout up thorns and our brows may pour forth sweat, despite resistance and setback, curse and difficulty, God has called all mankind, men and women, to be workers. We are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and master it. And yet... Although there is continuity with what Adam was commissioned to do, we see that there's also discontinuity because the word subdue is not repeated in this cultural mandate given to Noah. Why is that? Because of sin. (laughs) That sin and death and curse are the ultimate frustrators of this cultural mandate. That even though man is called to do this work, it will be frustrated. And so we can say, as uh, Meredith Klein says, that the cultural mandate is refracted. It's refracted. If you think about refraction, it's this quality of when light passes through a surface, it changes direction. When it passes through water or glass, if you've ever seen that in geometry class or something, this idea of refraction is going on, that the cultural mandate is still in place. Man is still to be fruitful and multiply, but because of sin and curse and death, man's efforts will be frustrated. So life will continue on, but it will be difficult. 
The second thing that we see is this idea of retributive justice. Retributive justice, that this idea of retribution. And we see this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. That God establishes these universal laws that govern the common grace kingdom. That of preserving life and that of preserving the family. And so there's lots to be said here. We don't have time to get into all this, but we can say this, that because murder directly opposes this commission given to mankind to be fruitful and multiply, those who murder are subject to death. That they've forfeited their right to live because they have, are opposing this command, this mandate given to man. Sam Renahan again says this. I think this is so helpful. In the Noahic Covenant, human societies have two basic and related jobs, to preserve life and to preserve the family. And as a result, any society or government that corrupts the family or murders the innocent is a government in direct treason and disobedience to the God of the universe. They are abusing the sword entrusted to them by turning it to the innocent rather than the guilty." that this, these, these governing laws that God has given not just one human society, but all human society, is this idea of preserving life and preserving the family. That insofar as our government corrupts the family or tries to take away human life unjustly, it is in direct disobedience to God and this Noahic covenant by promoting things that, like the destruction of the family, by promoting homosexual unions, divorce, all these things, it is going against God and this idea of preserving the family. And we can also think of other things that go against the preservation of life. The murder of the innocent. The, the topic in our day is abortion. These are all things that are opposed to not just God's law, right? Murder, but even this cultural mandate of preserving life and preserving the family. God has instituted the civil government. He's given them the sword to punish the evildoer and to reward those that do good. And so when our society doesn't do that, it is going against this Noahic covenant. And we see this all confirmed. We see this all come to a head when God gives the sign of the covenant. When God gives the sign of the covenant, it says that he sets this bow in the sky. We think of this as the rainbow. The rainbow. But the word, the text actually says, I have set my bow in the clouds. And that this rainbow was a sign, a visible picture of the promises of this covenant, that God would preserve his creation. And I think in our heads, you know, we're, we're familiar with the pretty colors of the rainbow and we see it after it rains, but we don't think of what it's meant to convey, the promise of the covenant that it's meant to show us. That oftentimes in Scripture, God's judgment is pictured as him drawing a bow and pointing it at the face of the wicked that God's justice is pictured as him pulling back a bow and readying his bow at his enemies. And this bow in the sky is God's bow set on a wall. It's, it's turned at its resting position. It's God saying, I'm not going to destroy creation. I'm withholding my judgment. I am not going to destroy the earth and those in it just yet. It's a picture of God's bow at rest in the sky. 
And so we can see very quickly that God is not just a God of justice. He's not just going to bring about his justice, but he's a God of mercy and a God of grace. And there's so much to say about this. And we can think in our heads like, okay, that's cool, but what does that have to do with us? How does that affect us here 2,000 years after Christ's death? And we can say this, not only is the Noahic covenant the only reason that we have breath in our lungs and are able to walk around in this earth and, and enjoy God's good gifts, but the establishment of this covenant of common grace does one major thing. It confirms to us that God did not abandon his promise in Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman will be able to come into God's creation. That he will preserve his creation. He will not allow sin to thwart his plan. He will not allow wicked men to thwart his plan. That the covenant of grace in Christ will take place. That the stage, the backdrop of human history will be preserved until the promised seed comes. <laughs> God is going to preserve his creation, not just for fun, but for the purposes of his redemption. He is going to preserve his creation until the Christ, the Messiah, comes and all those who are in him are saved. This is God's covenant of common grace. And so it's important that we distinguish it. It is not the covenant of grace. This is not God's promise to save everyone. It is God's promise to preserve his creation, his common grace kingdom but this still serves the purpose of the covenant of grace. It's distinct from it, but it serves the purpose of God's covenant of grace. And this brings us to our final point this morning, Christ and the covenant of grace. That this covenant with Noah, what God has done all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, points us, it launches us, it shoots us all the way forward to Christ. It points us and anticipates the work of Christ, that even though Adam broke the covenant of works, he brought curse on God's good creation, God will not abandon his promise. He's not just going to pull back from his promise that he had with the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. He will preserve his creation so that Christ can be born and believers can come to faith. This points us directly to what Christ would do. And it's also a reminder of judgment. It's also a reminder of judgment that even though God promises to preserve all of mankind until the day of judgment, it does not promise that God will preserve mankind through the day of judgment. That it can bring humanity and creation up to the day of judgment, but it cannot bring mankind through the day of judgment. That on the last day, the kingdom of common grace will pass away. God, in his final judgment, will pour out his wrath on all creation, as we read in 2 Peter. This time, not with water, but with fire. And we see that the only way to be saved through this final judgment is to be found not in ourselves, but in the true ark the Lord Jesus Christ, <laughs> right? 
He is the true and better ark. The ark was a type of Christ that all those that are found in Christ will be saved through the judgment. And this is even pictured in Christian baptism. We go under the waters as a symbol of our death and we come up out of the waters as a symbol of our resurrection. And Peter says this in 1 Peter that all those in him will be brought through the final day of judgment. They will be brought to the true new creation which is the new heavens and the new earth. So we see that even though the the Noahic covenant does not administer God's special grace, it serves the purpose of God's covenant of grace in Christ. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we see this work of the Noahic covenant in our lives today? Several things. (laughs) There's almost no way to overstate the practical application that the Noahic covenant has on each of our lives. I can't overstate it. <laughs> the, this covenant affects every area of our lives. It for, affects our relationships, our work, our home, our marriage, our children, our families, our politics, our workplace, our unbelieving neighbor or coworker. And it even affects our view of the church, which is God's kingdom of special redemptive grace. And it affects our view of the culture, which is the kingdom of God's common grace. And so the first point is this. We must distinguish between these two kingdoms. We must distinguish between these two kingdoms, between the redemptive kingdom of God's special grace and the common kingdom of God's common grace. That God is the king. He is the ruler of both of these kingdoms. He is sovereign over each, but we still must distinguish between the two. What do I mean? The church is the kingdom of God's redemptive grace. It is the realm where true salvific grace is administered by the covenant of grace, by the new covenant, that where believers are called and gathered into local churches, where the gospel is preached and the sacraments are given, the citizens of this kingdom are called citizens of heaven, adopted into God's family, and receive the benefits of Christ. This is the kingdom of God's special redeeming grace. And yet, (laughs) these same people are also called sojourners and exiles. Throughout Scripture, the people of God are referred to as sojourners and exiles. We are called to be in the world and not of it. And so we can say that we are citizens of both kingdoms. We also live in the kingdom of God's common grace. We are just as much under the Noahic covenant as the the most hating, unbelieving person you can think of. We are both under the Noahic covenant. That the rain does fall on the just and the unjust. On the believer and on the unbeliever. And just like our unbelieving neighbor, we are given common grace benefits. (laughs) We are given things that are common to all. Rain and sun, springtime and harvest, food, shelter, entertainment, (laughs) culture, uh, beer, (laughs) cigars if you like those, okay? Uh, Coffee, movies, all these things are common to all mankind. They're common grace benefits. None of these things are special grace benefits. And as long as they're done according to God's law, in faith, and in a good conscience, they are good and not sinful. (laughs) So we can rejoice, we can enjoy God's good common grace benefits. They are all by God's common grace because they are common to both believers and unbelievers. 
So we must distinguish between these two kingdoms. And this is especially true of how we interact with the common grace kingdom. Paul tells us this, that we are not to judge those outside the church, but those inside the church. That we can't expect the world to worship God. It's just not going to do that. <laughs> it's, it's an unbelieving world. That doesn't change how we preach the gospel. But Paul says we're not to judge those outside the church. We're to judge those inside the church. And if you'll just hold on with me for a moment, I would be remiss not to touch on this considering what month we're in. <laughs> that this is June, which is in our society called Pride Month. <laughs> it's the month where our culture celebrates pride through this celebration of the rainbow, this flag. And so it's very providential that we are talking about this flag and are also talking about the Noahic covenant during this time. And we see our culture celebrate pride, the autonomy of man, that man is able to make their own decisions, to be their own person, to celebrate pride and all that that means, the worship of self. And as we've said, anything that promotes the destruction of marriage and sexual perversion is against God. It's sinful. We can say that with confidence. Scripture says as much. But in an ironic way, the rainbow is the only symbol that the unbelieving world can hold to. Why? Because it is God's promise to withhold final judgment. The rainbow is the picture of this. We're supposed to see the rainbow and think of this, but they use this rainbow in a blasphemous and proud way. But it's still ironic because they're clinging to, in a sense, their only hope. And what we've said is that this will not save them. This, 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 this banner of the rainbow will not bring them through the final judgment. And so just to try to apply this, as Christians we can see this as an opportunity to engage with the sinful world. We can ask them, do you know what the rainbow really stands for? What it really means? That it stands for God's common grace, both on the just and the unjust. And we can use this as a way to talk to unbelievers and talk about their true need for not just common grace, but God's redemptive grace that can truly save them, that the rainbow will not protect them on the day of judgment, that they need the blood of Christ. And we can say this about all types of sin, not just sins of pride or homosexuality, but what does Paul say? Sexual immorality, neither idolaters or adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ alone truly cleanses us and changes us, and that's why we need to point people to his redemptive grace. And the second point I want to make this morning is kind of similar and opposite to the first point. So we first, we must distinguish between the kingdoms, and the related point is we cannot conflate these kingdoms. We cannot conflate the kingdom of common grace and the kingdom of God's special grace. And when we do this, we run into all sorts of problems. How many of you have seen prosperity preachers on, on TV? Word of faith, prosperity gospel pre- preachers. They think that they can start with this idea that if God gives me good things on the earth, that must mean He's happy with me. Or even this, that 
God is demand, they demand God to give them good, earthly, common grace benefits because they are believers, that God is obligated somehow to give believers good things in the earth in this common grace world. That if you get a good parking spot, if you have good health, if you have a good family, if you have a good job, this is somehow a sign of God's special grace on your life. But as believers, we realize that even suffering in this life is sometimes used by God to draw us closer to Himself. And so when we see this rightly, we can see that even in poverty or prosperity, rags or riches, for the believer, we know that God works all things together for our good. And so we cannot conflate this kingdom of common grace and special grace. And, and another way that this happens is, is when we start to pollute or even prostitute the gospel message. We do this in several ways. There are many out there who believe that the mission of the church is to redeem the culture, to take over the culture, that it is the job of the church to take over society, politics, education, arts, and government, that not just should Christians participate in politics as, and culture as we should, but that it is the part of the church's mission to win back the culture and ult- ultimately fulfill this cultural mandate. There's many different names for this, theonomy, reconstructionism, transformationalism. All of these are counter to our confession, but at best, they seek to confuse the mission of the church, and at worst, they lose sometimes the true gospel altogether. That where Christian, this is what happens, sadly, I've seen it so many times, when we conflate the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of common grace, Christian discipleship becomes about baking bread and shooting a gun. And so that becomes Christian discipleship, and somehow that is building the kingdom of God. That is a confusion of the kingdoms. That's great. Bake bread, shoot guns. That's great. (laughs) But that is not a Christian, a specifically Christian activity. It is not growing the kingdom of God. We can do these things as Christians to the glory of God, but that is distinct and different than building the kingdom of God which is what we've been called to do as a church, as believers um, saved by God's grace. And so the final point, I know I've taken a lot of time. There's so much in here, I wish there was more time to say more. My final point. When we stand back and look at this idea of the cultural mandate, the idea of being fruitful and multiplying, of filling the earth with image-bearing sons of God, with bringing creation to its final end, this thing that Adam was supposed to do, but after that, no one could do except Christ. He is the one that comes and fulfills the cultural mandate as the last Adam. He's the one that did what Adam was supposed to do. He's brought in the eschatological kingdom. Here's your big word for the day. He's brought in the end times kingdom. He has saved us by His grace. Our souls, we've been justified, sanctified, adopted, and He will bring us into everlasting life. Here's a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it's very important and I think will summarize a lot of what we said. This is by Charles Lee Irons. He says, The cultural mandate task has been transferred from the first Adam to Christ as the second and last Adam. He has in principle subdued the earth by His death and resurrection, and He will finally subdue it at the end of history when He brings all things into subjection under His feet and ushers in the new 
creation. God has not given up on His original goal. Although the goal of the cultural mandate cannot be obtained by the efforts of fallen man, it has been attained by Christ as the second Adam. (laughs) He's done it all. Because of Adam's failure, man's cultural labors cannot attain to this. It is attained only through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus by His active and passive obedience and His consequent exaltation as the Lord of all creation, the goal originally given to man and the hope under the pre-fall covenant of works is achieved by Christ from His exalted position in heaven where He effectually calls His people and by His Spirit working through them the preaching of the Gospel, He not only calls them, but He brings them into the church and fashions them into His holy people. (laughs) This is what Christ does now from heaven. He is filling the earth with image-bearing sons and daughters of God. This is what we call the Great Commission. (laughs) Preaching of the Gospel. The ends of the earth being filled with the glory of God, not by cultural activity, but by the proclamation of Christ in Him crucified. And what do we see at the book of Revelation? At the very end of all things, we see Christ on His throne, and what is surrounding His throne is a rainbow, (laughs) symbolizing that He is King not only of redemption, but of all creation, and all things have come to their fulfillment in Him. So let's thank God for His grace and praise Him for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for all that You've done for us in Christ that even all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, You've promised to preserve Your creation. And even now, Your bow is hung in the clouds. A sign, a reminder of Your promise that You will not destroy the earth again until the final judgment. That we can have hope that even though pandemics rage, earthquakes and hurricanes flood our earth, sin seems to destroy everything that man touches. You've promised to preserve your creation until all of your people are saved in Christ. So we have hope this morning. We know that nothing can thwart your hand. Nothing, no sin, no wickedness can come against your purposes. You have fulfilled this cultural mandate in Christ, and at the end of all things, you will bring your people to yourself where heaven itself will be not mixed between common and uncommon, but will be your holy dwelling place where your people will reign with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth, and everything will be put under Christ's feet. That's our hope this morning. May we rest in the promises that you've given us, not only in the covenant with Noah of common grace, but in the covenant of grace with Christ. We thank you and praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.